2: real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. Today, we're trying something really quite different. Earlier this month, I did a piece on Napoleon, how he's remembered, and offered some of my own thoughts on the unending sort of good guy, bad guy debate that rages on social media. But that's just my opinion, and I think it's important for us to have a reasonable discussion. So I'm joined by two individuals at opposite ends of the Napoleon fan spectrum. I'm joined by Marcus Cribb, a regular Napoleonic commentator on the podcast History Hack and manager of Abste House. which pretty much means that disliking Napoleon is an essential part of his day job. For the pro-Napoleon camp, I have Luke Daly-Groves, who is best known for waging a one-man war against the Hitler fled to Argentina after World War II, nutters, and does a sterling job in the process. But he's also a specialist on the legacy of Napoleon and on the memory of the emperor, both in France and the UK. It's great to have you both on, gents, how you doing?
2: Thanks very much, great, great to be here. Thanks for inviting us on, nice to meet both of you.
0: You too, thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Now this being a, a debate, the first thing to get out there is that I am going to be completely unbiased. I've had my say, people can have a listen to that if they want to. This is about two knowledgeable people having a reasonable discussion about Napoleon and showing to those on social media that you can actually get much further in historical debate by talking rather than screaming Napoleon's pro and anti-Napoleon propaganda at each other. So we're gonna start with both of you taking a couple of minutes to state your cases. What's your perspective on Napoleon? And how did you as individuals arrive at your conclusions? Luke, start us off.
2: Uh, So Napoleon Bonaparte to me is a truly remarkable and inspirational man. It's really difficult to sort of try and summarize this sort of giant of history in, in, in a short introduction, but um, his story is, 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 is one of endless fascination. The fact that he, he rises from relative obscurity in Corsica to become emperor of the French, largely by his own merit. Um, it, it's one of hope, it's, it's one of the idea that you can achieve almost anything if you work hard and you really sort of put your mind to things. Um, and I, I must say that I appreciate the man more than the legend. Or, or despite of the legend and despite the myths that surround him, because I don't think he needs it. I think he's, he's incredible even without that sort of myth-making and, and sort of legend, um, which, which surrounds him. Um, so you asked how, how, I, how I arrived at these conclusions. Well, I sort of studied Napoleon's system of rule at undergraduate level. And I thought that he was unfairly maligned by some popular perceptions and, and some sort of dark myths. And then for my MA research, my master's research, I studied the Napoleonic legends in, in Britain. And it's really interesting that, that sort of Marcus, right from the get go there, identifies a sort of uh, pro-British camp as being anti-Napoleon. Because what I found from my sort of primary source research into popular perceptions of both Napoleons in the 19th century is that um, the, there is actually there is a large amount of support for Napoleon in Britain during, during his rule, and particularly afterwards. And um, it, 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 I, I would be hesitant to, to, to sort of identify that as, as a sort of anti-British thing. And um, so to sort of uh, round it off, I think that my thinking on Napoleon is, is is quite well summarized by one of his most recent biographers, which is um, Michael Breurs, a professor of Western European history at Oxford. And he's just, he's written Napoleon Soldier of Destiny. And he says that um, his mental and physical energy, his unique talents, the sum of which can rightly be called genius set him apart from ordinary people. And I, I'm inclined to agree with that. I think the man was a genius. So that's where I stand. Largely positive perception. But But not blind to the facts.
0: But nicely put, I thought. Marcus, I'm gonna come straight to you. We'll we'll do rebuttals in a moment, but just give us your stance on Napoleon first.
1: So I came to Holien actually in A-Level. We did the end of the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon. And I came to him actually quite admiring a man. You see the chaos of the French Revolution um, especially during the terror that, that came out of that And then you see someone who it seems is bringing peace and stability to, to France and I, and I really admired that It wasn't to really kind of, I had quite a career in museums Spanning from tanks to Victorian ships and everything in between But really diving into um, the Peninsula War and, uh, and finding an area that I just I, I love and admire and lots of, And it's so interesting and so many different areas. And finding the first-hand accounts then of the French and the atrocities they committed in uh, Spain and Portugal, which I'll definitely come back onto later, made me start to think there was quite a darker side to this. Then when kind of reading Napoleon's rise, kind of removing my adoration and rose-tinted glasses, you see the rise, which has been played out time and time again, of a dictator coming in, from chaos, assuming power, putting himself into a position of opportunity, moving his inner circle in and up with him, and then whether he declared war, war was declared him, wars raging across Europe that caused millions and millions of deaths. I will admit that he has positives, um, ones which you've covered in your podcast and will definitely cover today, um, on his reforms and his ways of raging war and his legacy, but the more I've seen his legacy, these t shirts with his face on it, and postcards and buttonholes, and, and so much more, it really turns me off. It's like we've said before a cult like almost, um, he's revered near like Hook Lee and Powers by some, not not Luke, I know, but he's held so high that I think actually in this demigod status that I think it's worrying that uh, people are blind to the history and the facts and therefore as people know me um, especially I will take the the counter argument to try to highlight his flaws more than I actually possibly believe um, because I think that these flaws and especially these atrocities and crimes need to be highlighted in history as we cannot ignore uh, them for the, the people that suffered I think it's important to remember them.
0: I think the world is going to be kind of astounded by this reasonable stance that's just come out of Marcus Cribb's mouth. (laughs) He's known for for a good Napoleon meme. Sorry, Luke, you carry on.
2: I would actually largely agree with with Marcus there because I think a lot of this this sort of uh, propaganda that you see now, you know, his face on T-shirts and all this, which which I will admit to having engaged in at at some point or other, um, is is in a large respect, it's commemorating a legend, not the actual man. So it's more about what people want Napoleon to have been and and want to to think of Napoleon, their own sort of personal identification with his sort of broader ideas, rather than as as Marcus rightly points out, you know, the the darker things that 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 his rule actually meant in actuality and what what he actually did during during his time. So yeah, I, I, I would largely actually agree with that. And I, I think that's that's fair enough. Um, but where, where I would slightly digress is that I think um, if you leave the legend aside, I think the man is is sort of commendable enough on his own merits rather than sort of, you know, even taking, even taking into consideration his dark sides. I think he still It has... is difficult with the the legend and the, and the, and the cults Napoleon, which he created, but assists
1: today. I mean, you've obviously got the 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 painting of the two paintings of him crossing the Alps, one on a mule and one on a, a grey or a white uh, stallion. And that's how he's remembered. And then his um, coronation and him sat there on the throne with his robes. It's almost like sun rays coming out of his laurel wreath crown. And that's where people, still some people, see him today. And I think it's just too high a pedestal to put anyone on. And it just kind yeah. of, you forget that who he's trampled to be there. What's underneath that throne, that robes? And I think that's where we're gonna, gonna dive a bit deeper into.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I literally, I can't disagree with that. I, I don't agree with hero, hero worship. I think you should my, admire people's individual actions um, rather than just an entire being as this sort of godlike thing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I, yeah, this is, uh, this is interesting. <laughs>
0: I wasn't expecting this level of agreement, but let's, let's plow on and, and drill down into some specifics now. And let's begin with his achievements. Luke, the Code Napoleon, widely referred to as one of his greatest legacies, it is an impressive document and it was certainly something that France sorely needed.
2: What are your thoughts on its significance? Um, I think firstly to start off is that the, the Code Napoleon is a sort of, um, it's an endpoint of brilliant achievements which, which Napoleon himself has, has sort of um, headed in administration and organization in his earlier campaign. So if you look at um, what, what he does in, in, in the Italian campaign, um, what what he does in Egypt, is that uh, in, in Malta, he's this, um, I mean, some historians have said he, he deserves to be remembered more as a statesman than, than even as a military, uh, as a soldier, which is, which is the angle I sort of come at. Come at it because nothing, if you if you, if you look at his correspondence, nothing is too small for Napoleon's mind. So he's he's organizing police systems, small departments, ministries. Um, I think in Egypt he even goes as far as organizing street cleaning. Um, his mind is 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 operating in all these different ways. And, and he just um, he's he's a remarkable administrator and occupier of countries. So he's he's not just a soldier, he gets there and and he sort of he mixes everything up in terms of how how the whole country is run. And then you have, of course, when he, when he becomes um, first consular and then an emperor, and it, it changes to, to called Napoleon from, from the civil code. But then you have this codification, this, this as you say, this, this huge document, which you can actually see if you go to Milan in, in the Museum of Italian Reunification. You can see a copy of it, an original copy. Um, it, it is a compromise which is which is funny because you, you probably don't associate that word with Napoleon very much but it's a compromise between the Anshan regime and, and the and, and the French Revolution. It it, it mixes it or, or or at least it tries to mix um the best parts of both. So it so it sort of takes ideas from the from the revolutionary period and sort of gives them an Anshan regime garb in, in, in some ways. And and, and this is how Napoleon's reign is, is probably favorably known as well, that he's, he's the sort of synthesis of the revolution and of, of the old order as well and of course you know the the, the positive aspects of the code are that you know it, it, um, it gives um, French peasants the, the, the sort of security uh, to, to maintain the property which they, they gained from, from the revolution in, in one of its articles which is incredibly popular at the time um and, and and the sort of the basis of, of, of lawmaking that it that it that it establishes, you can trace the legacy of that to, to many countries around the world today, uh particularly in France, but across Europe as well, and even further afield the code Napoleon um is, is a foundation of, of, of modern uh lawmaking today. Um and I and I think there's there's an interesting quote which 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 I've picked out um to, to, to sort of which I sort of think of when I think of Napoleon, not just the code, but as an administrator, an organiser, a bureaucrat. And it's from Eric Hobsbawm, who you might not think to be sort of favourable to Napoleon because he comes at things from a Marxist perspective. Um, But he says that, no doubt, um, the British saw themselves fighting for liberty against tyranny, but in 1815, most Englishmen were probably poorer and worse off than they had been in 1800, whilst most Frenchmen were certainly better off. And it's this idea that this um, the code brings much needed stability after the the sort of chaos of the coups and counter coups of the Directory and the French Revolutionary Terror period. And 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 this actually um, with stability brings prosperity. And I think if you if if you look at the socio economic conditions at the time that that he his system of rule in France certainly um, is uh, compares favourably to his opponents. That's that's um, that's how I put it.
0: That's fair enough. I mean, I'm interested by the Hobbesbon quote because I I wonder to what extent is the reduced prosperity at the for the the British public at the end of the Napoleonic Wars a direct result of nearly 25 years of of continuous conflict but it, it's unfair of me to critique Hobsbawn and to kind of ask you to comment on that unless you
2: particularly want to. Well Napoleon's at war as well I mean he's he's committing um, hundreds of thousands of men to war as well so you know they uh, and I think Britain does rather better in terms of defying his sort of continental uh, blockade so I, I don't think that that's uh, that's necessarily the case with the comparison I think um I think the, the, the system which Napoleon established in France was more liberal than the, than the system that was operating in Britain at the time, and certainly in terms of, of politics, of course we can get into that later, um, but I do think that, that Napoleon has much to do with that, that stability and that, and that comparative prosperity. What about
0: the negatives in there though, and I'm thinking particularly here about women's rights, slavery, where there were steps back from the gains that had been mm. made during the Revolution
2: yeah i mean this is the idea of it being a compromise and um, the, you know napoleon's views on women are rightly considered to be very backwards today but at the time they were very common they were very traditional and there, there is evidence that they, they, they were actually popular as well obviously not with with a lot of women but with with the men who who sort of, sort of had Napoleon's support and again if you compare it to you know uh, his, his main opponent in Britain, you know, the, the Great Reform Act, which comes well after the Napoleonic Wars, establishes that women can't vote at the time then. So it's it's not really unusual for the time, but it is, as you rightly say, a step backwards. And of course, slavery is abhorrent, and we, we know it's abhorrent, but then, you know, um, Napoleon's opponents, um, Britain, you know, of course it abolishes slave, uh, the slave trade or slavery, um, in the middle of Napoleon's rule, but again, you know, for half of Napoleon's rule, Britain also has slavery. And um, it's the case with, with his opponents as well. You know, you've got serfdom in, in, in Tsarist Russia. Um, so again, yes, there, there are bad things about the Code Napoleon and things that we wouldn't wish to see repeated today. But in terms of the advancements and the stability that it brings, I think overall, it can be seen as a, as a positive step forwards, um, taking into account the necessary compromises, which did take Um, some things backwards.
0: Marcus, what's your thinking on the Code? So the Code's
1: a really interesting one, isn't it? So straight from the get-go, it's not the Code Napoleon. We're straight in with Napoleon propaganda. It's the Code Civil des Français. It's it's not the Code Napoleon. It's this legend that he's written it himself. There's all these stories that he spent 20 hours a day working by candlelight, writing the Code Napoleon, when actually he probably just rubber-stamped most of the thing. It was written by Jean-Jacques Regis, uh, the Juc de Palme. Sorry for any pronunciation uh, I've, I've got wrong there. He's written it with a team of lawyers. And it's a great document. It's one that needed to be written, but it wasn't written by Napoleon. He is taking credit for other people's work under his administration. And it has huge flaws. Um, Luke's really admitted it's the slavery of the woman's rights. It's also, um, it's got a quite reversal of quite a few employment rights that have come into the revolution, and it upholds the class system, making it deeply unrevolutionary. There's this um, idea, and I I won't even just say it, you know, it's Andrew Roberts of Napoleon is basically the revolution on horseback going forwards. It's just not the case. The code Napoleon reverses, and this is the big thing. Women's rights massively increased during the French Revolution, which I think, we can all agree it was a good thing despite the terrors of the French Revolution, women's rights really increased. Napoleon reverses that and removes a lot of women's rights. So they effectively become property again. Um, A huge step backwards, removing it hundreds of years backwards. The other one is, Napoleon isn't just apathetical to slavery. Slavery gets abolished under the revolution. He brings it back in and then deeply entrenches it, enforces it into French overseas territories. This isn't a passive idea, and it's often held up, oh, Napoleon uh, abolishes slavery in 1815 when he comes back, but he didn't really have much time to do anything, and we don't know if he'd won, actually, if he would have reintroduced it, because he would have needed it. It's the strong reversal of civil liberties and rights, and something we're going to come on to um, I know is the kind of the police state as well. But the code Napoleon isn't progressive, it isn't Napoleon, and it does have a long legacy, but a bit like the uh, American uh, amendment systems, it's been hugely, hugely edited. It's got the foundations, but these foundations have had our know, new titanium rods put into the ground to actually support the civil structures that were in place today. And not all of Europe uses it. It's widely spread into, into Italy and former French areas, but not all across. And uh, Britain had a different system we didn't have an outright you know, revolution, and these things came slowly, gently, and we've ended up in a very similar places at the end of the day with quite liberal democracies. So it wasn't necessary that Napoleon was needed to write these documents, and he didn't anyway.
2: But I, I think it's unfair to, to sort of dissociate Napoleon completely from the code. He presides over 55 out of 106 meetings about the code. And um, it, it's noted that, you know, it, it was his interest in in the drafting of the code and his motivation and his humour, which actually spurred on the, the, uh, the legislators um, in, in sort of creating this document. And, um, you know, the, the idea that, you know... It, uh, it wasn't Napoleon's doing. It's not the code Napoleon. Well, that goes against the idea of him being a dictator. Surely a dictator would say, "Oh, I want all of this. This is my code." Well, no. Actually, he listened to the Council of State, and he was willing. He was willing to to learn from them, and and to sort of he understood that they were experts. And he he would allow them to sort of guide the, the the debate in that way. I understand what you say that he t- he takes more credit for it than he should, and that's something that Napoleon um, it, it was one of his faults, which I would pick out about him, is that he's, he's got this great habit of um, of taking things that other people do and say that that he did them. Um, but it's—I don't think it's the—it's the mark, particularly of a, of a dictator, the fact that he presides over um, just uh, just over half of the meetings concerning the code. So he's—he's he's obviously got an interest in it, and, and and he's there. But he's not overbearing. He's not—he doesn't have to be there all the time. He's not saying you must do this, you must do that. He's sort of sparing it on. And, and you say that it's. Um, Yes, you're right to point out slavery and 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 the reversal of women's rights and and i think um, on, on the case of women's rights you you'll find no defense from me other than the sort of comparison to, to to others at the time um i think um you know the the other things which which napoleon does um you know he, he makes education more accessible you know the education under under the directory uh, was widely considered to to have been um, sort of in decline and failing he he, ex- he expands the education system um with the code I mean that's another that's another positive thing which we uh, which we haven't discussed um, yeah so I, I think you know you, you can't divorce Napoleon from the code and you say you rightly say it provides foundations and it's heavily edited but it's the skeletal structure of, of many modern bureaucracies you know the titles even the prefect system of local government you can trace that back to Napoleon in in France so um yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of unfair to see it as a, as a counter-revolutionary document. I think it's more fair to see it as a synthesis and a compromise between both. Uh, one thing I'd I put back is, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't yet calling him a dictator, definitely diving into
1: that, um, but the, the Jean-Jacques, <laughs> uh, Duke de Palme, who, who wrote it, is meant to be the second consul. So in theory, after a mm. year, he's meant to be stepping in. And that just never happens, which is one of one of the reasons that it's worth mentioning him, because uh, he stays as second consul and then gets um, chamberlain kind of positions. The other thing is I feel that the reason that it's so successful and the reason that uh, Napoleon and the others wanted it, and the education and everything that comes with it, is it forms the basis of Napoleon's system, which is to raise taxes and to raise men for war. And having a unified system, helps conscription and conscription was the thing which was really unpopular in france at the time it, it caused such widespread devastation but it made it was made all the easier by having a unified system because i think before there was at least three major ones and a whole load of provisional ones under the Ancien Regime, which was just madness you know the fact that north france and south france didn't even have the same laws as paris and some uh, really like local uh, differences and, and that didn't work but that doesn't mean that it was all honorable and there wasn't a motivation underneath. And I feel that motivation was
0: largely this kind of total war setting that Napoleon was cranking towards. Well, let's build on that actually, because one of the things that often becomes a point of contention when discussing Napoleon is his politics. He came to power, as you've said already, Marcus in a coup, installed himself as an authoritarian leader of government, made use of a secret police. In so many respects, also acting like a monarch of the period though and that's an important distinction to make that the differences aren't huge between what Napoleon does and what other authoritarian leaders were doing across the continent at the time so what do you make of his politics and actions as a leader of a nation so that's kind of the point is
1: he's held up as being greater you know Napoleon the great and this great revolutionary liberal leader and he's not he is very similar to other monarchs. Um, I was I was listening last night, this morning to a series Andrew Roberts does, and he's the the great supporter. And he said that no, there's no criticism um, censored of um, Napoleon. Well, that's not true because I've been listening to the Napoleonicist podcast, which is much better than Andrew Roberts. And on there we've had um, we've had the theatre under the Napoleonic era, and there was censorship. Mm. There was literally police in the theatres criticising and censoring what could and could not be in that era. Um, So censorship was there in in France. Uh, 18,000 gendarmes, which is a huge amount of internal policing. Uh, That is not including the secret police. Uh, the secret police and the gendarmes had the power to uh, detain indefinitely without trial. This was used over 2,500 times, of uh, detaining political prisoners without trial, just on their suspicion of um, having anti-Napoleon or anti-regime uh, feelings, of Napoleon's regime, that is. Um, and this leads to a huge area of state surveillance, and the feeling that within France especially, that their people are being watched, their feelings and their thoughts are being policed. Passports are needed for travelling between areas, especially into new countries, and these aren't passports just as we see them today. These are permissions like a chit to travel, basically, and to move around areas to try to limit um, outside influence. Heavy searches, not just on the border, but internal checkpoints between areas to try to find dissidents. And Napoleon himself had a really heavy hand in this. He wasn't passive in any sense. He read a daily briefing from the Ministry of the General Police, which was normally like a 20-page document. And he took great personal interest in these fiscal prisoners, deciding whether they were allowed parole, um, meal allowances, and where they were going. So Napoleon was very aware of the fact that he was repressing people within inside his nation, and he found it a interesting, fascinating. Um, he was you know, known to be a man who worked really hard, but it's, I find it very interesting that he's a man who's also throwing himself into the political repression
0: of his, um,
1: his systems.
0: Andrew Roberts fans are going to be baying for you, your blood after that comment about the Napoleon assist and how it stacks up against uh, uh, Napoleon the Great. But I want to throw it over to Luke. What's your take on all of
2: this? Yeah, uh, well, uh, I, I have not heard Robert say that about censorship, because, of course, it's untrue. And I, I quite like Andrew Roberts as a historian. I, I, I'm not going to defend that comment. Of course, Napoleon had censorship. Um, of course, most historians agree that it's fair to classify Napoleonic France as a police state because of the way it operated, as you rightly say, you know, with Fouché's spies and all this sort of thing, and the imprisonment without trial, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there are there are a few things I I, I can I can say to to, to what uh, Marcus said there. Um, I think it's notable that death penalties overall fell under under Napoleon's rule, and um, in in comparison with his Cape in Britain as well, which at that time was under the Bloody Code, there was less death penalties under Napoleon than there was in, in Britain at at that time during during Napoleon's rule. Um, I think. Um, that there's little of what Napoleon's critics accuse him of that that couldn't be used as an example against themselves as well as his opponent's regimes. Um, I think Napoleon's, you know, all sort of regimes have to sort of suppress um, conspiracy and this sort of thing. I do think Napoleon's regime went a bit too far. I mean, and certainly by modern standards, you know, nobody's going to defend a police state as, as something that we would want today. But, um, I think Napoleonic France was better in terms of of terror, if you like, than what came before and regimes that even came after as well. So um, Philip Dwyer, who's who's a a Napoleonic historian who who I quite admire, and and, uh, I think he he, he strikes a balance quite well in that he's not overly favorable to Napoleon, but then at the same time, he he can see the other side. And uh, he he quotes here um, from his book, Napoleon and Europe, which I think is, is, is quite good. Um, He says, all things considered, a few hundred political prisoners and a few thousand internal exiles in an empire of 30 millions was hardly excessive in comparison to the far more severe repression of which France had experienced in the 1790s during the French Revolution. And then he says, of course, the victims of Napoleon's political police undoubtedly had a somewhat different view of things. But then he goes on to say later that terror was never a tool of Napoleonic government. Terror in the sense of you know the masculine in which they saw in in in, in the French Revolution, and, and and again when you when you look at um, again the, the the death sentences are falling, and then you have to look at the the uh, the sort of the, the role of others in in Napoleon's um, regime as well. You know you have to look at Talleyrand and, and, and Fouché. You know that there is evidence. I mean the historian Felix Markham sort of. And, and I think to to an extent uh, Vollock as well. They, they sort of emphasize that Talleyrand and, and Fouché are, are egging Napoleon on in, in some ways, and they later try and sort of distance themselves from, you know, the execution of um, the, 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 the Duke, the Duke d'Anjou and um, the, the, the sort of expulsion of, of Jacobins and, and all this sort of thing. But it, there is a, a sense of um, it's not just Napoleon, like you said before. So if you're going to say that... Um, the, the civil codes, or the Code Napoleon, is not just Napoleon. Well, you have to accept that the terror is others as well. Also, the repressive side of the regime is not just Napoleon. There are others within the system of government that are agreeing with these moves and, in fact, inspiring them as well. Um, I do think, uh, on a whole, to sort of summarise, I think considering the, the regimes of the time and the tools which Napoleon had at his disposal, he could have been far worse than he was. And I think that he showed um, he showed mercy more than he had to. And, he, and as I said he could he could have been worse but he wasn't I think he was he was naturally inclined that, to be kinder than other rulers of the, of the period
1: so that that's yeah that, that's the problem with Napoleon he's not a terrible dictator is often where it kind of comes down to he, he has a police state yes Talleyrand and, and people kind of are egging him on but he has the Ability there, and he certainly does use it. Like I say, he's he's taking real personal interest in these daily police dispatches. Now, like twenty-page documents that go straight to his front door, and he and he reads them almost every day, it even when on uh, campaign. He's not um, he, he's not siding that on to someone else. He wants to see what's going on in the internal politics. And I'll admit, you know, Britain's uh, trying to bring him down. Um, and he, there are internal problems that he needs to be worried about, uh, effectively spies going in. But I still think that's with good reason. He is still a destabilizing agent uh, within Europe. He's a threat to what I will admit is the, the old structure, the old government, and Britain is far from perfect, and we've used it as a comparison a few times. In fact, it's pretty terrible, um, Britain. But it is, as Zach said earlier, suffering because it's at war, with France. I was doing some rough maths recently and realised that people who were fighting at Waterloo would have basically been born into revolutionary war with France and in that era. And so they could have fought and died and been brought up and all of their life and the system would have been war against France and especially Napoleon is, is the peak of that. I don't believe he ever really wants to sue for peace his peace always seems quite secondary. And when he's offered good chances uh, with huge concessions in 1812 and 1814, he throws them away until the last possible moment. So I don't think Napoleon is completely mild-mannered just because he's not using uh, the death penalty. I think a lot of opposition is being thrown away because he's using conscription. And so your kind of liberal young men who would normally be stirring up progress and uh, political dissent are being marched from hither to tither across Europe fighting and potentially most likely dying uh, whether in battles or starvation or disease and that's basically putting them under a military system so it's a police state with a huge military focus and that's what Napoleon
2: comes down to. Again you know I I think we could just go around in circles because I I think we're just sort of repeating ourselves now I, I think Death sentences sentences falling is a good thing. I think you know Napoleon could have been worse than he was, considering the tools at his disposal and considering the actions of his opponents. Um, I don't think it was a perfect system. I'm not going to argue that, but I think um, f- for the time that it was, um, you know, it it was um, overall it was it was admirable compared to, to to what he could have been and what could have been done. Uh, I don't I don't buy this sort of which, which is what a lot of people do, is the comparisons with Hitler and the sort of modern day dictators. I mean, I, I I'm hesitant to even accept that that he was a dictator, which is something which, um, you know, I'm not the only biographer to do that. Um, there is, uh, there are other historians who agree with that sort of interpretation that that you know he's more of an autocrat than a dictator. But then again, that's the sort of the comparison to the other rulers that that that, that are there at the time. I think the Napoleonic regime in comparison to his opponent's regimes, it, even in terms of politics and in terms of um, the, the sort of use of, um, you know, imprison, imprisonment or death sentence or, or I, I trying to think of a word for that. Uh, in terms of punishments of, of criminals, I still think it compares favourably. And my, my sort of main point of comparison is Britain, because this is obviously my history of my country and what, what I've studied. And as I said, you know, Britain has more death penalties at, at this time. It's under the, the bloody code. And you say that, you know, he's he's a dictator, he rises to power in a coup. Yes, but then you have to consider that the coup was was a sort of, it was a group conspiracy. And um, Napoleon wasn't the first general of choice. Um, he initially actually expressed hesitancy before he, he decided to partake in the coup. So it's not the story of this dictator sort of seizing the reins of power. You know, other people want him to take power. And then you also have to think as well that he has these these. These plebiscites, and I know we discussed these quite quite a bit on on, on Twitter. Um, but compared to to how many people could vote in England at the time, even even after Napoleon's rule, you know, um, a handful of a hundred thousand people, three hundred to four hundred thousand people. I think um, I think it's edging towards four hundred thousand with the Great Reform Act in the eighteen thirties. But before that, you know, uh, Napoleon has millions of votes like over millions in his favor even accounting for the fact that you know that these votes aren't aren't entirely um, without interference from Napoleon himself and they they aren't exactly running the right way but then the British electoral system isn't running at the right right way at this time neither you know you have the rotten boroughs you have the pocket boroughs you have corruption in Britain I think overall if you take the context of the time Napoleon's system is um is is better for for the majority of people that's I I, that's, that's my perception so just picking up on some points
1: from uh, Luke there, one really quickly, the plebiscites, because we, us three, interact quite a bit on uh, on Twitter, and I welcome anyone else to join in. But the plebiscites, yeah, millions of votes were cast for Napoleon. It was just convenient that the army had their votes cast for them, and that was the, ma- that was the nation under arms. So I always think that's really convenient, um, that all the men who were in uh, the army had their votes cast automatically for them, because why would they not want to vote for Napoleon? And I know I'm massively oversimplifying um, a very complicated issue, but I just think that, with, especially with some current climate um, votes, um, legitimacy is quite important. But no, you keep, keep saying, comparing, comparing Napoleon to the rest of the European monarchs. And this is it. Napoleon's meant to be better than them. He's meant to be greater than them, according to many. But he's also meant to be continuing the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity. He doesn't do that. He brings back in a nobility system. And I think that hugely undermines the revolution, but also the middle classes, uh, which were trying to emerge from it. And this nobility are just some of them are just the worst. Some of them are his family who are there not for any sort of ability. I mean, his, most of his family are really quite feckless. I think is the best description I've read in a book of them. And I keep coming back to, I mean, Joseph, especially. He's, he's useless in nearly every single role he does in the defense of Paris, trying to rule um, Spain. You know, he just instigates massacres and looting. Uh, I've got to be grateful because his collection that he loots ends up in Apsley House, otherwise, I wouldn't have to But uh, in all seriousness, you know, he, he's terrible. And why does he get this position as the king of Spain? Well, because he's some sort of brother. So the, the system that comes in is huge twisted. It's his family and it's his inner circle. I would go so far as some of them just his lackeys and he's bringing them with him from his coup, his military coup, all the way up through. And we see quite a few that fought with him before he was uh, in power when he was a general. get very quick um, attention and become um, very quickly marshals. And so I think this is showing a real sense of nepotism, but um, it, it underlies that Napoleon is there uh, ruling on um, and it's purely down to his personality and who he wants in those positions.
2: Yeah, I, I I think Napoleon was better than the other European monarchs even though he does, as you say, in the Empire period which, which is my least favorite period, as, as we can get into later, I, I still think even, in, even at that sort of height of his success he was better than the rest of the European monarchs um, because he has a popular legitimacy. And wh- whether you accept that the plebiscites were altered, yes, they were, but they were altered to make victories look better. He already won the plebiscite, So as it, insofar as it's imperfect to measure popular legitis- legitimacy in that time, I think the indicators reasonably suggest that Napoleon was popular and that he had the mandate to... Um, have his sort of imperial system, which was voted on in, 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 in the imperial permacite, so as, as imperfect as that system was. And it, it didn't get rid of all meritocracy. There was still meritocracy within the ministries in France, which he'd established. Um, so, so, so there was still, you, you know, and, and, it, and he did have the sort of patronage of the arts and the, and the sciences and, and the encouragement of, of these things. So it, it didn't sort of snuff out all meritocracy, although it, it's definitely not the sort of um, the most positive aspect of his rule. Um, but I, I do, I do think, still think it's better than absolute monarchy, which is, which is what the French Revolution was, was taking a stand against. And of course, the, the, the plebiscites of, of, of Napoleon I inspired the idea of universal suffrage, which, which goes on under, under his uh, nephew, Napoleon III, to actually be established in France as a Bonapartist idea, which I think is miles forward of, of, of Britain at the time, uh, with its sort of, um, you know, its limited franchise.
0: Let me take this back to something that Marcus picked up on earlier, which is the sort of man of peace argument. Essentially, this idea that Napoleon didn't want war, but had enforced upon him by coalition powers, particularly Britain. And that in those instances where he did strike, these were just preemptive strikes designed to get his retaliation in first against the inevitable. Luke, where do you stand on that argument?
2: I think it would be useless to argue, as some people who support the Napoleonic legend do, that Napoleon was some sort of Gandhi, that, that he, was, he, was, he was essentially a pacifist He was always forced into war. But on the other hand, I think that there is some truth. I, again, the answer is, is nuanced as usual. I think um, Napoleon certainly inherited wars from the French Revolutionary period, which were not wars of his choosing. Although, of course, it annoyed the, the other party's opponents that he was so good at waging them. Um, I think he genuinely wanted the peace of Amiens, the peace with, with Britain, which which he, he sort of, he, uh, I, I think that that sort of actually aided the popularity of his coup in in um, in, in Brumaire because th- there was this general desire for peace and I think Napoleon sensed that and, and his correspondence indicates that he did actually push for that and, it, and he honestly wanted it and he seemed to have been personally offended um, at, at the sort of, the, the British um, sort of ill will with that peace, you know, the no, not the, the will of the British people, of course, because when Amiens is, is declared, there are there are sort of um, mass uh, popular demonstrations in London in favour of Napoleon, you know, hussar for huzzar for Bonaparte and all that sort of thing. Um, but but from the, the sort of the, the British upper classes, who I think. Um, were always sort of uneasy with with the peace because the, the, fundamentally they didn't like Napoleon and, and, and France was the sort of great rival, historic rival and, 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 and enemy of, of Britain. And I think there there are historians who would place uh, quite fairly the breach of Amiens um, not with Napoleon but, but but with his but with his opponents. Where I do think the man of peace argument falls is um, after Napoleon's defeat. Uh, with russia before his first abdication i think he's offered a reasonable peace on terms which i would consider to be reasonable and i suspect that many people in france would have considered them to be reasonable as well but i think at that time he he obviously says he wants peace um but not on any terms and i think this is something which britain feels like the same as well you know none of these these countries were peace at any price you know this this was a time of power politics this was a time of invasions and of war and of empire building but even considering all that i think um, Napoleon uh, pushed it uh, before his first abdication and, and he was offered uh, quite reasonable terms which for whatever reason, you know, suspicion of Austria, the desire to secure better terms through another military victory, which never came. I think um, the, the man of peace argument falls there. But I do think that it, there is some merit to the idea that not all of Napoleon's wars were, were of his own doing and, and some of them were, were, were indeed defensive. And I would argue the same. Even I know this is contentious, but I would argue the same from um, the return from Elba as well in the, in the hundred days.
0: Let's let's stay with the the return from Elba then. Do you mm. feel that when he turned around to the coalition powers as they were becoming, as they were prepping for that final war of coalition, and he said that he was after peace, do you feel that was genuine in the sense that? He didn't want peace because he was buying time. He wasn't really in a position to be able to fight them off all at once. Or do you think that he genuinely would have preferred to have just settled in France with the borders as they were and um, ruled a, a much smaller French empire from the one that he had established a decade earlier?
2: This is a tricky one, isn't it? Because um, he says at St Helena, I think there's a comment at St Helena that him he would have sort of uh, the first opportunity he got from a great victory that he would have um, he would have done away with the sort of liberal reforms which he promised when, when he returns in 1815. Um, but at the same time I think the radicals in, in Britain who, who were sort of favorable to Napoleon, I mean the, re- the return from Elba if, if, if you allow me to sort of just contextualize a little bit um, opinion turns against Napoleon quite vastly across Europe even even with his supporters after the first abdication and on his way to Elba he sees you know himself getting shot and hung in effigy and I think this this does actually change the man uh, to some extent because he realizes that he's not as popular as as he perhaps once thought Um, but when he returns from Elba I mean this is this is one of my favorite sort of You know, I said at the start that this is a great story. I mean, the man literally retakes an entire country without firing a single shot. You know, the the king flees. And from my own research that there is a turn in popular perceptions in Britain at this time, you know, people at first thought that the Bourbon restoration would be a good thing, thing for France, but then they realized that the Bourbons actually continued some of the negatives of Napoleon's regime. So the censorship continues. And, and some even argued at the time, it seemed to be worse than under Napoleon. So you have British radicals in Britain arguing, hang on, um, we, we didn't want to sort of um, return Uh, the the, the sort of Ancien regime with British blood. And um, there there is a sense that Britain was wrong not to trust Napoleon when he says that he wants peace. It it was sort of unchristian of Britain to to sort of um, assume that Napoleon was just going to wage another war there the, the was the idea that it was wrong to sort of declare war on one man after all the arguments that have been raged against assassination and the principles behind that. And you do see a, a change, even people that were negative towards Napoleon in Britain, that there is literature at this time, which people are saying, well, um, you should wait until Napoleon breaches the peace and give him the benefit of the doubt because it sets a terrible principle for sort of uh, Britain to decide to, to preemptively invade or, or attack a country's chosen ruler because don't forget there is another plebiscite um, just because they, they, they suspect him or they dislike his system and, and, and I have much sympathy for that perspective I think um, that, that there, was, there, there it was a time of hope for many people I, I, and even in Britain and I think that you can see this when Napoleon docks when he's eventually defeated at Waterloo and he briefly docks in Britain from the crowds that, 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 that gather around his, his ship and, and cheer and even take their hats off in respect for him and this is something which, which uh, worries the British ruling classes. Um, so yeah, I, I do think um, we can't know for certain whether Napoleon would have stuck with the reforms of 1815, uh, but I think um, he may have been compelled to do so, whether he liked it or not, just because of the tide of public opinion in France. I, I think um, he, he would have been forced into a position where he would have had to have kept um, a more forward system than, than had been previously the case.
1: 1815, I just think, is staggering. I I don't actually believe that Napoleon did want peace. I don't think that peace was possible. And Napoleon, if anything, was not stupid. He must have known that peace was not possible when he came back, when he escaped Elba. He'd been given very favourable terms by basically being created uh, emperor on Elba, and uh, he could have you know, lived his life there quite comfortably. Many of his followers and some of his family followed him out there. And he had the opportunity to actually reform a, a micro nation. And it wouldn't have been dishonourable. To return to France was only there to reinstate power. And, and I think, you know, the, the reinstate power for who? For himself. He was not going to be doing this for the glory of France. And if it was for glory, was it worth the sacrifice and the cost? And this is what really... I want to say it upsets me about 1815 and about Waterloo. I don't really see Waterloo being honourable or glorious. I see it being vital in defeating Napoleon. Um, Europe needed final peace, and he was going to come back, and that's what people commemorate. But coming back, it was war was always going to be inevitable whether that was Napoleon declaring it after he, he came back and he's completely reintroduced conscription. So I don't think he, he wanted peace. I think the idea that oh war was declared on him and that was unfair is not entirely um, fair or true um, purely because he, he reintroduced conscription and to such a wider level uh, than before. Um, you know, calling up the National Guard into uh, the army and mobilising so many different forces. But he, it, was, it was not going to be an option. The, the other nations of Europe were never going to allow him to return. They'd already declared him in exile, and to allow him to come back would have been allowed to him to have completely free uh, reign. And Napoleon must have known this, that war was going to happen um, on there. But going back to the original, uh, was he a man of peace? Well, something we see in a lot of conflicts is not necessarily the aggressor is the person that legally declares war. And this is used so many times by people apologising for Napoleon and saying, not, not Luke, he's admitted. But I see it so much out there. People go, oh, but the Allies declared war and Britain declared war first. And it's so, like Britain wanted these wars all the time. And I will admit, between the Whigs and the Tories, there were some who wanted to deflect from internal strife and problems. Uh, it's, a, it's a classic thing we see, you know, the Falklands War in 82. Why, why was war declared? Uh, but to distract uh, distract from internal problems. But I think it was here a case of people declaring war because they knew that war was inevitable, and so to strike first and to mobilise coalitions uh, was wise. And I'm not declare. I'm just here. I am not comparing Napoleon to Hitler, but just the circumstances of 1939, uh, politically, of Britain declared war on Germany because that It was the only option. They had pushed and pushed and pushed, and to not declare war at that point was weakness. And for Britain to was financing lots of these wars, um, but Britain needed to declare these wars. Napoleon was certainly aggressor in so many of these cases. So to take Spain and Portugal individually, Portugal um, was going, wanted to defy the uh, continental system, and I think rightly so. They had an outstanding. A relationship with Britain, and we had a trade agreement that went back to the 1400s. Uh, and it was really strong. We celebrated it quite recently, um, personally, with the Apsi House, uh, with the uh, with es- um, embassy in Lisbon. So they, they were forced into a position where they had to um, concede to the continental system. Napoleon was effectively ordering an army to be marched towards uh, the gates of Lisbon, And what's always forgotten is the Portuguese government did concede. They actually broke off trade with Britain and they legally declared war on Britain for so far to actually try to do an embargo on their ships in harbour. Now they probably didn't want to actually ever act on this war. It was a bit like Britain and Finland during the world war two. But it did happen. Portugal conceded to all demands and they were still invaded. And after the invasion became, came the massacres. Spain, for example, was, was France's ally. Only two years earlier, they were fighting with France against uh, Nelson's fleet at Trafalgar. And then for no reason other than, I believe, a power grab, Napoleon takes um, the king and the crown prince of Spain, puts him under house arrest, and puts his brother, Joseph, who I've already said is just pretty useless, on the throne. And I can't see any reason on this other than a power grab over to the Iberian Peninsula. So, he doesn't declare war on either he just invades and takes over Uh, spain he's already infiltrated because his army's been marching to portugal so napoleon certainly is an aggressor, a man of peace not at all a warmonger maybe i wouldn't go that far but he's certainly a man who liked war because he was good at it
0: luke let me give you the opportunity to come back on any of that
2: yeah okay so spain was not Napoleon's finest hour. I don't think you'll find anybody that, agree, that, that, would, that would argue that it was. Um, I think Napoleon fundamentally misunderstood Spain. Um, I think he genuinely thought that he was spreading good ideas and that his ideas were of civilization and that you know, the Spanish people were sort of ungrateful for not just accepting those ideas. But then that's why he fundamentally misunderstood Spain. And it's one of his, his greatest mistakes is that you know um, people like to be ruled by their own people and certainly this is, this is the case in, in, in the sort of fiery history of Spain, particularly in the 19th century. Um, but but to, you know to Napoleon there's this the, the sense that Spain was just sort of a, a initially it was just sort of a sideshow, but then this is a great miscalculation, isn't it? because it, it, in, in the end it, it sort of it, it, he refers to it as a, a, a sort of sore eventually in, in, inside. Yeah. So I think um, his intentions were perhaps were perhaps good, but then of course, his methods are are certainly questionable and it all goes it it, it all goes wrong in Spain basically doesn't it so yeah I mean I'm not going to defend that in in any way other than to say that he genuinely thought his ideas would be well received by the people of Spain um of course he was mistaken um on on the return from Elba uh I again I I can just reiterate that there were journalists and, and and even you know people in the house of commons who argued that you know Uh, it wasn't right to go to war with Napoleon until he returned to his old ways and and that sort of destroying a a foreign government by arms uh, was a fatal precedent which was worse than Napoleon's continental rule and this was an argument which which went right through right through the time so it wasn't you know the case of Britain against Napoleon at the time there was division and even after the defeat of of um of, of Waterloo um, there's a huge sense in, in, in at least sort of working, or as far as we can tell, working class publications and radical publications. There's a sense of um, that this was a British blood propping up a, a, a Bourbon throne, and, and this is something which which wasn't liked. And then the, there was the perception that it, it, it sort of uh, it was a victory for, for the Tory politics of, of Wellington and, and his sort of political ideas over. Um, the liberal ideas, which Napoleon had, the more liberal ideas which Napoleon had promised. Whether you believe whether he's going, he would have implemented them or not is is a separate issue. At the time, he had promised these things, so it, it was seen as a, as a, as a defeat of liberty, and it and it was in, by by this is by the lower class sort of working class radicals in, 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 in go, going forward after Napoleon's defeat, and it was it was incredibly difficult uh, for Britain to sort of. Um, Discuss that legacy in some ways and we can we can talk about that uh, uh, later if you'd like but just on the point of elba quickly i i think marcus recently wrote a, a really good article in military history now about wellington's victories and he concluded it by saying you know it was wellington's daring that made him great well i i can't think of anything more daring than an, a single individual retaking an entire country and making the king flee without sh- firing a shot i can't i can't think of anything more daring than that
1: no it's it's, it's an amazing story uh, i think it's just very sad that it causes so many deaths especially in france but daring it sounds like something out of a spy novel of man coming back slipping over the the back wall and ending up in the capital and taking the throne without firing a shot no it does does sound fantastic um but I, I would also add that Napoleon wasn't also wildly, you know, welcomed back. There were moderates within the French Parliament that didn't want him there, and there's also there's the idea of like kind of the passive resistance within there, knowing that he, they couldn't get rid of him. And then you look at the Vendee uh, in Western France, and they went into armed revolt very quickly, and a large part of uh, Napoleon's army ends up having to go put down that rebellion, and they put it down really bloodily. These are like armed peasants who basically go into protest within their borders. They're not trying to invade out, and Napoleon's forces go in and they do start killing and looting within their own French borders. So there is a resistance, and that's just one area that's gone into arms. I would, uh, I've I've read things I believe from Rory Muir about uh, kind of more passive French resistance, purely because the country was so tired of war. We say are saying that Britain was, and men who. Being born into this, but France has got war on its borders, and they're sending young men, and by this point, old men, um, off to fight wars for like 20 years plus, and so people are just absolutely exhausted at the idea of another war. Uh, what Napoleon does do th- very well is he motivates people, and he brings this idea of the glory, and all this chanting that comes with the eagles and the flags, and he's very good at that. And so I think that's what motivates the army but I think the general population and the idea of conscription again is absolutely exhausting to the point of just lying down and doing what he's saying but only because there's no other real option for many of them.
0: Surely the one area where we can all agree is on Napoleon's skill as a commander though. Marcus, even if you can't stand his politics, his personality, You've got to stand in awe of the guy, his ability on the battlefield, what he managed to achieve as a result um, in terms of building the French Empire. I mean, yes, it, it's impressive. Um, yeah, uh, but the Colosseum's impressive,
1: and you know that was built for um, really horrible means to some of it. N- yes, N- Napoleon is a fantastic commander. The problem is, my problem with everything with Napoleon is is the exaggeration of his ability as a commander. There's this really weird um, kind like, of infographic that does the rounds about Napoleon, Wellington, Caesar, and I think Genghis Khan. And also, thank you very much Luke, for reading the article and enjoying it um, on Ministry of History Now. Thank you. That's very kind, I didn't say that before. Oh,
0: it's very, good, uh, no, it's
1: very <laughs> good. Yeah, I, I don't think Waterloo is the most important battle of the Duke of Wellington. Um, yeah, it's purely because he faces Napoleon means it's relevant to today as well. You know, it's, um, it's sung about. But uh, there's this infographic that does the rounds and it lists the number of battles. And so in preparation of this, I was starting to list all their battles and their, their draws and their ma- major overwhelming victories. And yes, funnily enough, Napoleon's got won more battles than almost anyone else. And there is a reason for that. He, as we were saying earlier, he is going out and causing conflict, whether that's them declaring war on him or him invading other nations, and he does, you know, let's look at France as well as Spain, he's invading his allies. He is causing war, whether that's through his politics and forcing people to fight him or him actually going out and doing it. So, funnily enough, he does fight more battles, so therefore he wins more. But as with portion, he loses more than Wellington. You know, Wellington doesn't lose a pitch battle. He loses Burgos and some rearguard retreats, and he doesn't lose a pitch-fought battle of, of a bit large build-up. Napoleon does. And when he loses campaigns, such as the retreat from uh, Russia, he loses it in spectacular form. M- you know, his his cavalry are decimated. His men barely uh, arrive out. And many who do not only are traumatized mentally, um, which is never really studied the, the psychological effects that these men are having to go through of a traveling such a long way from their home borders, but be the horrors that they've experienced and inflicted. Um, I think it's quite right to say in, in Russia as well. This was my, this is my turning point against Napoleon was the, the the horrors that they inflicted on other nations, but you know, they, these men are coming out with toes missing and they're seeing their best friends die in front of them from a Cossack or a Russian lady slit their throats. It's, it, it's devastating. So, yes, Napoleon's very good at war. And when it all goes his way, I mean, uh, he's spectacular and he's the master of manoeuvre uh, strategy. We look at the 1814 campaign where he's fighting on his own borders and he's everywhere. He reminds me of um, the uh, Prince of Orange character in Sharp. I oh, shall be everywhere. He, he is everywhere. He's, it's an amazingly fought campaign. Uh, you know, turning battles against the Prussians one day and, and the Austrians um, two days later and speed marches that no one else would thought be possible. But it's this, does he need to be fighting them? He's got a lot of experience in war because I still believe he's causing the wars. And that's, that is the, the nub of Napoleon for me, that we've got so much to study about, but the suffering that lies underneath it is
0: um, really palpable. Luke, I want to come straight to you on this. Napoleon,
2: incredible commander, right? Um, Well, I'm not a military historian, so I I don't know very much um, other than secondary sources about the sort of nuts and bolts of of how to wage war and how to wage battle. But what I do know is that from the hundreds of um, newspapers and pamphlets from the 19th century that I read, um, not all of them favorable to Napoleon, many of them critical there seemed to be a large general consensus in those newspapers from people who know much more about waging battles than I do, uh, that Napoleon was a military genius. And this is the phrase which is used again and again and again. And uh, you know, the Pall Mall Gazette, um, which is usually critical of of Bonapartism in 1867, it called Napoleon the greatest conqueror and military genius since Caesar. Um, And then, you know, the Duke of Wellington himself uh, there, there are quotes in which he, he seems to consider Napoleon to be the greatest general of the age, and, and, and of course there's the famous thing where he said his presence in the fields were 40,000 men, and also, um, you know, you've just got to look at, at, at the legacy of his victories, you know, um, when Napoleon III um, again embarks on an invasion of Italy in the mid-19th century, um, the British Foreign Secretary wrote down that Austerlitz and Jenner will hardly be repeated. Such was the legacy of these battles, that they were sort of a standard and a marking point of, of, of good warfare and, and how to wage war. Of course, again, I would debate that Napoleon was causing these wars and that, that he was always the cause of these wars. Um, or, 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 or perhaps it was more the, the sort of often unfair perceptions of, of his opponents which which thought that they had to wage war against him, which which, which I think was was often the case. I mean, certainly with Amian, you know, you can argue that. I, I don't think Napoleon caused that breach of, of, of the peace. Um, and and, I, and again, you know, <laughs> we can go round in circles with, with, with eighteen fifteen. But yeah, um, despite all the comments in in the nineteenth century, I mean, I've read hundreds of these newspapers. Um, despite all the disagreements about his politics and what that that might mean, um, there's this idea that he was he was a brilliant soldier and and and, and he was just a, a great military commander, which which I think is 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 something of a shame really, and it's, um, which which, which perhaps you don't expect me to say. And um, because it, it sort of allows Britain to get out easily, if you like, because it focuses attention on Napoleon's military side and and, and his military victories, which makes Britain's defeat of Napoleon look even more impressive. So it makes the British look great. And it's in some ways easier for them to sort of discuss it. But what it does is it avoids the much more awkward questions of Napoleon's politics and his system of rule and his administration and his popularity with lower class radicals in Britain and all these sort of awkward questions which open up things um, which, which are much more difficult for, 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 for British sense of national identity. So I think it's somewhat convenient uh, to, to remember him as a, as, as a military genius because, hey, look, um, the British, albeit as part of a sort of coalition effort, we, we defeated a military genius. So, yeah, I think, mm. um, but but I wouldn't dispute. I think he was a great soldier and, and I've not seen much dispute of that neither.
1: No, I think uh, Luke's raised a really interesting point that, you know, if we were... Swatting away this stereotypical French army that runs away all the time, like it does in a you know Hollywood film or in Sharp or something like that, there wouldn't there wouldn't be any you know glory in it for ourselves. And so, to for the British press to say that Napoleon was great as a military commander means that our own glories were better, and they weren't running away all the time. You know, this that is a a really widely um, uh, unfair stereotype that was often brought in. And they want some fantastic victory, victories. You just need to look at Genoa and Austerlitz. I mean, there's so many before I start quoting them. But when Napoleon gets involved at some, I mean, Borodino, it's almost like he doesn't want to be there at the battle. He sulks in the rear, refusing to send in uh, the imperial guards. And it just doesn't seem sometimes that he's motivated. He does have wild mood swings. Um, and even during the Russian campaign, he pauses to have a birthday parade when they could have actually been pursuing the Russians. And it allows one of the Russian corps to, to slip out over a river. Um, Russian campaign is not my strong point, but um, I know he, he pauses for a day because it's his birthday. So he causes um, all the corps to stop and celebrate his birthday. Um, yeah, all I'm going to all I'm going to finish off this off with is uh, is a quote that if uh, it was the uh, Tsar of Russia before Waterloo, before they'd even faced each other. He called Napoleon the uh, the world's conqueror, and then called Wellington the conqueror of the world's conqueror.
0: I mean, what I would say about the Russia campaign is, and some of the other campaigns, Waterloo being another example, is that this wasn't necessarily Napoleon at his best, for a variety of reasons that can be discussed in another episode. Um, But, so I wouldn't kind of consider Borodino and some of the things that happened in that campaign and what happens in the Waterloo campaign? Admittedly, there's debate about to what extent was he really ill. Um, to be representative mm-hmm. of the guy's skill, like um, you've mentioned already, 1814, which has so many parallels with the skill of the early Italian campaign. Right. Um, and I think when Napoleon brought his A game, he was probably unbeatable. Would you say oh, that's His manoeuvre is fantastic.
1: Um, it really, especially his manoeuvre and his, his lightning strikes, but What you want with a commander often is consistency. If they're always going to be bad, they might get relegated to another job. If they're always going to be good, victory is assured. With Napoleon, you're not quite sure what you're going to get. You know, it's a bit like ringing up for a takeaway. You you order a a margarita pizza, (laughs) you, you don't want to get a meat feast if you're a vegetarian, do you? You want to get some consistency down the line and napoleon doesn't bring <laughs> consistency <laughs> i don't know where that analogy came from um but he, i love that
2: napoleon's really, like ordering a pizza brilliant that's great cuz pizzas my off, favorite just, food
1: as well it's, it's lunchtime and i'm quite hungry um and uh, <laughs> you know girlfriends out so i might order a pizza uh, but um, he he doesn't bring consistency to it, and it's that it's that problem that we we want consistency from commanders because we know what they're going to deliver both on and off the battlefield. And Napoleon causing birthday parades, ha- having illnesses—you know—it's not his fault, but he he's often ill, so he's he's not present or sulking. He has wild mood swings, and he's known to you know when he was demands peace in eighteen fourteen, he throws his hat on the floor. That's not very imperial, so. Yeah, he, he, he can be one of the most fantastic commanders, but he can be quite apathetic at times, looking at Borodino especially. And that is strange, what I'm just gonna leave it with, I think.
0: We definitely need to get t-shirts made. Napoleon is like ordering a takeaway when it comes to battle, <laughs> but let's move it on. To be honest, we could do an entire episode just on this itself, but let's talk about Napoleon's legacy. Luke, I want to come to you first, because I know you've actually written about this. What is Napoleon's legacy, both globally and within France? Because he's not the only leader of France to actually bear this name, is he?
2: No, so Napoleon I, his legacy, I wrote my master's thesis on this idea that it must be seen through the sort of lens of Napoleon Third, because Napoleon Third takes great inspiration from his uncle, of course. And he sort of, um, he revises what Napoleon meant to Europe in in a way which you can quite rightly call propaganda in his book, um, Napoleonic Ideas, which which to a large extent, it sort of, um, it starts, it, it sort of cements the legend, if you like, this idea that, you know, his wars were defensive, he was a, a sort of large liberal emperor and this liberal ruler, which is what Napoleon III wanted to be seen as. And also that um, he sort of contributed toward the unification of Italy and this idea that he was Um, his sort of centralizing through the code Napoleon, this sort of thing was all about creating nation states which he would eventually sort of remove this imperial glue from them in the end and give them their sort of sovereignty Um, now you can debate like how much Napoleon um, was actually going to sort of release the reins of power um, because of course on Saint Helena Napoleon himself says that 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 is exactly what he was going to do, he he had his eye on Italian unification, and it's debatable because his actual policies at the time Um, look like, you know, he, he didn't have the intention to do that. However, I do think it's a positive thing that he inspired future rulers like Napoleon III to take this more liberal idea and the more positive ideas from his reign and to push for reform with it. So you have Napoleon III, as I say, you know, he championed universal suffrage in France, which is, of course, a progressive idea which we welcome and we all enjoy today. Um, He he champions Italian uh, reunification, and and, and that's why he's commemorated with Napoleon I in the Museum of Italian Reunification. And of course, at the start of the the episode, we talked about the Code Napoleon, you know, that is the foundation of so many modern governmental systems, which we we all still benefit from, not least, you know, the idea of a a sort of professional civil service with ministries and, and, and a meritocratic system within there. Um, in Britain, though, which is which is what I sort of focused on, Napoleon's um, legacy and how he was interpreted in Britain, he provided um, a lot of inspiration for, um, for want of a better expression, working class people, as far as we can tell from the evidence, who were seeking reform in Britain. So um, they used him as a, as as a sort of stick to beat the Duke of Wellington and his sort of anti-reform Tory policies with. They said, you know, um, that they sort of they they tended to. Um, agree with Napoleon's liberal intentions, whether, again, whether they were actual or not, we can debate, but the fact that they inspired such movements, I think, who were on the right side of history, of course, the Charters, you know, the idea of universal suffrage in in the People's Charter, I don't think many people would disagree with that today. The fact that Napoleon provided them with a, certainly with a symbol of inspiration, I mean, they they printed the Escape from Elba, the Flight of the Eagle, um, on the Charters' calendar in their newspapers, um, I think that's important because it, it gave um, radicals and and later chartists and, and and working class people a sort of a symbol to rally behind for reform. And, and there are all sorts of interesting examples of this in in, in my uh, thesis, um, but but uh, I'll, I'll sort of I'll try and pick out one. Um, the, 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 there was a sort of amusing um, discussion, but it was there was a, a uh, another sort of invasion scare. In, in Britain, the time that Napoleon III came to power, because of course they know that the Napoleon had the intention of invading England, and people suspected Napoleon III. And there was a meeting in 1852 of working men in Preston, and they hilariously argued that um, Wellington should fight Napoleon III himself because, you know, they had not they they hadn't gained anything from Waterloo, and it was only Wellington that gained from the sort of the suffering of of, of British troops. And this is, this is, um, you know, it, it's quite a popular perception in Britain at the time. And, um, you know, Queen Victoria herself becomes sympathetic to Bonapartist ideas to the extent that in the 1870s, uh, Theo Ronson, who's a great sort of historian of, of Bonapartism, says that she becomes a Bonapartist herself. And there is, the, the, you get the sympathy for Napoleon in Britain, uh, com- which comes from his defeat and his imprisonment on St. Helena. There's. He says all sorts of things with British identity. So there's, there's this idea of guilt, the fact that they, his poor treatment with, with uh, Hudson Lowe, which is something which Queen Victoria talks about as well, um, and the idea that they want to make amends for this, which is which is really interesting because a lot of the working class newspapers in big Victorian Britain, they didn't like Napoleon Third. You know, they, they sort of slanted him with the same terms which Napoleon I had been slanted with, you know, monster, bloodstained, tyrant, usurper, all this sort of thing. And they tried to get working class people not to sort of celebrate Napoleon Third when he came for a state visit in England. But this backfires spectacularly and he's greeted by large crowds. And part of the reason these working class journalists they they, um, they try and sort of figure out, okay, well, what's gone wrong? We've told the workers to not sort of greet Napoleon 3rd They've done it anyway. Why is this? And the interesting conclusion they come to is that in cheering for Napoleon III, these sort of masses seem to be thinking that they're, they're making amends for the wrongs of Waterloo and St Helena and the Bourbon Restoration. This idea that Britain did something wrong with Waterloo, and they're actually thinking, well, no, we don't want to cause any sort of pain to France. And, and this, is, this is not my conclusion, this is something that, that, they, that they reach in the newspapers themselves. And I think there's much truth in that. The idea that Napoleon had these sort of forward ideas, which were, which were snuffed out for much longer than they had to be at Waterloo. And I think it's the ideas, uh, these ideas, the positive forward ideas behind the man, rather than the more negative ideas that I know Marcus is, is going to emphasize, which, which gives me a, sort of, a, a more sort of positive perception of, of, of him.
0: I want to talk a little bit about demography. As well, the kind of the the population impact, if you like, because as with all wars, success is built on loss of human life, and there are those who argue fairly convincingly that there was a colossal impact in terms of a generation of young Frenchmen going off to war and many of them dying. Would you agree with that and? in your opinion, does the human cost outweigh the benefits or not? Because I don't want to put words in your mouth here.
2: I think uh, if, if, if I could sort of go back in a time capsule to history, I, I would have rather have fought for Napoleon at Waterloo than for the Allied armies, simply with the hope that he might have been genuine with his liberal reforms and his, his, his promised more liberal constitution, because I think that they were miles ahead of what his opponents had planned and in store at the time. And I think they were inspiring ideas to rally around. Um, so I think um there's a good quote from the a biographer of napoleon um thompson and, and he says that the, there was little that napoleon had done which could not have been thought excusable if he'd been a, Bur- a bourbon or, or a Habsburg. and um you know his armies committed atrocities uh, but so did the russian guerrillas and even british soldiers in spain and i think I, I i'm more inclined to be sympathetic towards that view in that you know he was good at war in an age where in an age of intense war and power rivalry, an age where, where Britain is expanding its own empire. Um, and, and many of the criticisms of Napoleon were turned against him in, in Britain, you know. They called him a usurper. Well, the British usurped in India, which, which was a common one. Well, how can you call him a usurper usurp, usurp in India? You know, there was racist attacks, which said he was, you know, it emphasized his Corsican ancestry. And it's like, well, King George III had, had German ancestry. I think there's a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of criticism leveled at him purely because he was this um, this soldier who who managed to, to rise to rise to power.
0: Marcus, if, if nothing else, Napoleon has given us a spectacular tomb at Les Invalides in Paris. He gave a sharp hornblower, master and commander. There's there's cultural legacy there. I mean, he's even given us a job arguing about him. Surely we can be grateful for that at least.
1: I, I think I think it's hilarious. We, we're giving him legacy credit for his own tomb. Um, he was he was buried in Saint Helena, in almost <laughs> near disgrace. Um, but so it wasn't until eighteen forty he came back. Um, yeah, the tombs the tombs pretty, um, but g- kind of. I just don't think no. It, it there's no way that the legacy and it always comes back to glory with Napoleon. There's no way. that Glory is worth somewhere between 3 and 7 million deaths. I've seen some that range it up to 10 million, um, but that's not as widely accepted. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're talking at, at least around 5 million deaths. I'm not quite sure that a marble tomb, it's like seven layers deep and people go in and chant Vive, Vive on over and over. Um is worth it? In fact, it, it kind of sickens me that the irony that shall "Long live the emperor" when he's long dead, um, in, in a basically a, a tomb. Uh, no, it's not worth it. I mean, I love Sharp possibly even more than Uzak, <laughs> and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but I'm not quite sure the legacy and the suffering, the atrocities that I read in Spain, especially. You know, you think they're meant to be this. Their recent allies um, almost broke me, you know, they they were really sickening to it's not just the the murdering. They said it's like a plague of locusts when the French army appeared because they would strip everything bare. But it's it's the raping and the psychological warfare that they're using to suppress population purely because they're not French. So therefore they're different to them. Um, it's deeply upsetting and they are atrocities crimes of war now britain is no angel in this era um and something i know you know zach's writing about brilliantly is the crimes that the british army um did and the punishment system but that's very much i feel to survive to to eat additional rations when it wasn't forthcoming and uh, not to go out and repress a population and uh, to such a horrific extent uh, the other the other legacies um, something that three of us enjoy talking about is i think the art and culture and that doesn't necessarily have to directly be because of napoleon but is kind of um, related to the era so where we've got uh, Beethoven who was a huge admirer of Napoleon, until he crowns himself uh, emperor, or at least until First Consul for Life, and betrays the revolution as he sees it, and then starts um, rededicating his great symphonies, no longer to being to Napoleon. In fact, there's a the Peninsular War one in the end. And uh, to link it in, I think the reason why well, Isaac invited me very kindly in today is um, because of the art in Apsley House, uh, where you've got the, the heart of it's the Spanish Royal Collection, which Joseph Bonaparte was looting from Spain um, and basically taking it back to Paris. The Bonapartes did this all across Europe. This was not unique. It's why the, uh, there's so many amazing museums in Paris. Um, but you've got things like Canova. Canova as Napoleon Mars, the Peacemaker. Now that's an ironic title for anyone who knows their classics, in, as a starter. But it's a beautiful statue. Um, Canova was the master of the marble. And uh, it sits in Apsley House, uh, basically fully nude. And it's a really interesting one because Napoleon hated it. It's about 11 foot tall, it's very flattering, and it's, and it's just a beautiful piece of art. Um, the reason Napoleon hated it is he was kind of convinced by Canova to have it nude, apart from the fig leaf. Fig leaf's original, and there's a toga draped over one shoulder only. And uh, Canova, we think, was doing this because by the time that he'd had time to improve the design of it, it, the war had ravaged Europe so much and so much of this art had been looted that Canova felt personally offended by the Bonaparte, Napoleon especially, for looting art in Europe. And so to paint him in this kind of, he convinced Napoleon in a class, sorry, sculpted, not painted, uh, in a classical style of this um, fig leaf only uh, was actually mocking him. And Napoleon, when he saw it, said Norse, troupe athletic. It is too athletic and hid it behind the screen in the Musée Napoleon, which is now the Louvre and hid it away. And as a footnote uh, lots of the art that Canova and his friends and his colleagues actually was, was returned by uh, both personally by Wellington and by the Allies at the end of the war. And Canova was so grateful he actually presented a, a marble um, head to the Duke of Wellington to be thankful. So Napoleon's legacy to me is one of looting and destruction uh, across Europe and anything else is a positive that we must um, be thankful for, but the price was too high to pay. And did we need it? No, especially Waterloo. Nothing was gained from that. at all, except for more uh, devastation. I remember, you know, really vividly, though, people at the beginning of the campaign, you've got accounts like Captain Cavalier Mercer who cheer, jingoism, pure jingoism, that one, they basically cheer, one more chance to have a pop at Boney, huzzah, my lads, and they all run out of the barracks, um, clutching their newspapers that war's been declared. But at the end, when you've got um, people like Captain uh, Leach, you know, Peninsula veterans, and they have to turn away. the battlefield because it's so destructive and wellington himself who breaks down in tears for over half an hour having seen the list of the dead and the dying that includes his friends and swears to never fight a war again um they say wellington you know luke said wellington should have fought the war himself with napoleon i think he probably would have been something a sacrifice he would have gladly made would be to fight a duel with napoleon to prevent the many young men who died on that day
0: Mind you, Wellington wasn't a very good shot, so in terms of outcomes, it might have been very different. Luke, I want to give you the chance to respond there.
2: I think, in terms of sort of emphasising the negative aspects of of of, uh, of Napoleon's reign, and that, that that's a sort of fair inter- interpretation. I mean, you know, nobody's going to justify Lutetian. I certainly won't. Nobody's going to justify sort of um, horrific crimes committed by by soldiers. I'm not going to do that neither. Um, I just think that in in the context of the time, this was a a battle of ideas and Waterloo in the end came down to a battle of ideas as well. And I think that too often the ideas represented by Napoleon were more forward than those of his opponents and and that the negatives, which his opponents sort of accused Napoleon of, could be too too often turned against themselves as well. Um, So I think that, you know, often these were wars which didn't have to be fought. But I I think it is a case of, you know the the british thought that they were spreading civilization in india napoleon thought that he was spreading civilization in spain you know it's 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 an era of, of bad ideas but within the bad ideas there are there are goods and I, and i and i do think that if you look at it in terms of you know ideas and systems i, I think napoleon has it I, I just, I just do because I, I, I think history goes in his favour eventually in terms of the, the reforms which happen in Britain. Yes, it happens slower, but it eventually ends up somewhere where, where Napoleon was already at in eighteen fifteen not all of the art was negative about napoleon we haven't mentioned his sort of cultivation of the arts in egypt and how how the egyptian adventure really sort of advanced egyptology and and how he how napoleon was was a sort of intense reader of of essays in art science history geography how he himself took part in a sort of um, survey of the Suez area in, in, in Egypt and how you know the discovery of the Rosetta Stone and how he published all these in volumes when he got back from Egypt because he insisted on taking experts and intellectuals with him to Egypt because he he saw the importance of of forwarding sort of um, uh, these sort of ideas and, and and yeah so he wasn't just always the enemy of artists and art and plus I like his empire style of art and architecture which helps as well.
0: I wanted to dwell a bit on the, the pro and anti-Napoleon camps and their origins. Luke, where does the anti-Napoleon perspective come from, in your opinion?
2: I think much of it comes from the, the, what's known as the black legend, which, which Britain plays a, lot, a large part in. So you have um, much propaganda in, in Britain, which is just slanderous at, at the time of Israel. So Napoleon's depicted as a dragon, as a lizard, um, he's, he's given terms like bloodstained tyrant, usurper. He's always depicted as this tiny thing, you know, head on a spike and all this. And I, and I think that the British he I mean, calls for his assassination are made even at, at, at certain times. And, and I think that the British propaganda, it goes over the top. Um, it crosses the line in terms of its dehumanising rhetoric. This idea of Napoleon as an antichrist crops up quite a bit. Um, and you can see why Napoleon was annoyed about it as well because you know he wasn't the devil incarnate. he wasn't an Adolf Hitler. Um, he, he wasn't really, as you say, you know, comparing to, to the Habsburgs and the Bourbons, you know um, his his rule was 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 comparatively mild compared to what to what it could have been or what it could have been like and even compared to other people at the time, I think, I think a lot of it does origi- originate in Britain. But interestingly, I, I think Victorian Britons actually saw through a lot of this. And you can see towards the end of the 19th century, a lot of the, the public commentators come to appreciate Napoleon. That There seems to have been something of a shift again after the Second World War, where I think Napoleon is wrongly associated with Hitler. And that has sort of sort of revived negative perceptions of him as a sort of dictator, n- no matter how how many historians sort of push against that idea. I do think that, that that has sort of revived a negative perception of him. Um, but, yeah, I think Britain has a lot to answer for in terms of its, of its propaganda.
0: Marcus, what about the pro-Napoleon camp? Where, what do we owe that to? I think we owe that to the era and Napoleon himself. You know, we, we look
1: at the, and it is the propaganda that he is commissioning um, of himself in the era and those who directly within his inner circle who are trying to create an image to flatter him. And Napoleon loves to be flattered, loves to be thought of as this great new um, house. He kind of slightly exaggerates the history of um, the Bonaparte family to give them more aristocracy. And, And that's why he's bringing his family up with him to try to make them look like nobles. Especially his um, elder brothers and some of his sister, some of his close sisters, and marrying them onto his generals. Um, but the the paintings and the images of all the men cheering and this great um, grey stallion rearing up and and the uh, even the Coup de Brumaire paintings that we see, which was completely bumbled by Napoleon, uh, and it just creates this this real cult and this real legacy, which is hugely. Unhelpful and untrue. Uh, I see it completely persist today in America and online. They people get very offensive in the defence and personally attack anyone who has a word to say against Napoleon. And if he don't, if you don't think he he was near godlike, um, then you then you're wrong. And they'll put expletives basically in there. And I've been on the receiving end of that. There's no middle ground for some of these people, and it, it's it's fascinating genuinely fascinating from um, a viewpoint to try to study where this propaganda has been so successful. I mean, I disagree with Luke, I'm afraid to say. I I strongly think he was a dictator, and in fact, I I think he was a tyrant. Um, But, damn, was he a successful one in creating that image? You know, this is something that could almost be praised by dictators that come since. You know, the dictator's handbook, how to do things. If he hadn't probably fought war on so many fronts at the same time, he possibly could have won this. Um, especially the first time around, doing Spain and Russia were both unnecessary. And if he just consolidated his power, then it would have probably been a completely different story. British expeditions, the Flanders campaign failed abysmally. Uh, So I think he he did very well in cultivating this image, uh, this reputation. But I think where it probably fell short as well was he started to believe his own hype. He believed that he was undefeatable in battle, that he was this amazing commander, that he was this liberal ruler, where well, I just don't think the facts stack up to any of that impressive. Certainly, I'm always impressed by Napoleon, but the, the cult, the legacy is too strong for many cases.
0: Luke, Napoleon believed his own hype. I, I'm not convinced that you'd agree with that, so I want to give you the chance to chip in.
2: Well, the, the quote I mentioned earlier in the in the discussion is actually from Frank McLean's biography of, of Napoleon. I, I think it's on page uh, 666, quite fittingly, which is quite interesting. Uh, he says, Napoleon was an autocrat, but not a totalitarian dictator. And, and, and I'm inclined to agree with that because, you know, the, the term dictator has taken on all the negative connotations of, of, of Hitler and Stalin since then. And I think in the context of the time, I think autocrat is, is a more fair way to put it. And as I said, you know, um, Napoleon was a brilliant propagandist. I'm not going to deny that. And it, it's funny that, that Marcus sort of acknowledged that as well. He, he was talking about how brilliant Napoleon was with propaganda. And that's, almo- that's almost like a good thing. That's almost to I mean, he was so he was so clever with how to use propaganda. Uh, and I'm not going to deny that he that he did that. Um, But I also don't think that I mean, I think that was sort of necessary uh, to an extent that he wanted to sort of try and inspire and unify Paris. Don't forget, he was fighting wars against um, all sorts of enemies. And and this was a a marvellous way to sort of rally people around him, which is necessary for him to sort of win the war for France. So I think that that there is a positive aspect to that as well. Um, of course, as historians, we can pick it apart and say, well no, that didn't really happen and that didn't really happen. And, you know, but the, the sort of public image and the public portrayal of it is, is admirable in, in its skill as propaganda. Um, in terms of him, you know just being a tyrant and, and, and all this sort of thing, you know, as I say that even with the, you look at the, the code the Napoleon, how that was written, he, he did listen to the Council of State. He did have respect for experts and intellectuals. He was a very questioning individual. He would ask questions because he wanted to know more. Um, he, he had a very inquiring mind this is why people call him a genius because he was just capable of of um, he had this marvelous ability which I haven't yet managed to master myself but I wish I could of, of closing one drawer and opening another and then and, and it's a different subject you know he's he's waging wars and then he's writing letters left, left right and center about all different manners of subjects to do with governance um, so no I don't think he has all the characteristics which which define the modern connotations of a dictator because he he, he listened too much. He listened too much to his own counsel. And of course, um, these qualities uh, sort of wither away as the empire expands. And, and uh, you know, um, historians like to sort of try and date when did Napoleon change? You know, for Beethoven, it was with, when he became emperor. Um, for me, I think it's when he divorces Josephine because I think he loses a lot of the admirable sort of aspects of his character at that point. And he does change as a person. Um, I think it's more the earlier Napoleon, which people find very inspiring, rather than the sort of arrogant Um, emperor that he becomes towards his first abdication but then again the the return from Elba for many is is a story of redemption you know he sees his mistakes he comes back and he says well no we're going to have reform and and, then he he puts through you know the abolition of slavery and other sort of um, admirable reforms so he's a very complex character and people will always try and I mean hundreds of years people have discussed what is Napoleon's character what does he mean is he more positive is he more negative my personal perception of him is more positive because I I arrive at this conclusion based on who he inspired um, and his sort of ideas and context to other people but then of course if you look at the more negative aspects of them, it's understandable why people would dislike him. But I do think it's unfair um, to call him a, a dictator, an overall dictator, considering the modern connotations of the term. And I think tyrant is is perhaps too far. I mean, certainly not in France. I don't think he was a tyrant in France. I think... Um, there are instances of of, of his reign which can be considered tyranny elsewhere in favour of field. But I I think uh, to to call him a tyrant overall is unfair.
1: It kind of comes down to the the overall empire to me, it's, you know, to go back to to Spain and Portugal and Russia, um, the legacy there was near tyrannical. And I think that's why I use that term. And it is to hold a mirror up to um, the cult Napoleon. And uh, people who apologize for the actions there, which Luke's not doing, but, um, you know, the, the they're not acceptable. They are really difficult to read. They're actually like kind of historically difficult to quantify because they did wipe out entire villages. So there's no witnesses. And this is before censuses, especially in like rural Portugal. But. Um, these were meant to be allies these are meant to be friends and these were definitely innocent people and these are not the actions of a liberal ruler uh, when you see that he does not want to give up power I find that uh, a form of dictatorship the plebiscites we could probably discuss for hours um, but i I believe that it was a, a showing a sign of a, a you know an autocratic uh, totalitarian uh, system. But tyranny, I think, is fair when you see the, the legacy of the warfare not being on the front line, um, and that is something that um, it will never be excused, in my opinion. And uh, I think I, I found it really interesting earlier. Luke said he would, he would, he would be happy to be at Waterloo. I would have, I would have picked up my brown best musket, and my uh, cartridge pouch, and uh, happily volunteered for the Peninsula War. I'm not sure I'm as hard as some of those men to give them credit on both sides um, are, but. Um, it was certainly something that I, I feel strongly about to, to motivate that Napoleon was uh, not a force
0: for good. Well, before the two of you start taking pot shots at each other, <laughs> let's let's have one one final kind of interesting uh, slant on this. If you were to switch perspectives for a moment, and I have to say you've both been very nuanced throughout this, and neither of you have adopted the extremes of either position. But if you were to make the cases for the other sides of your respective viewpoints, what would you say about Napoleon? Marcus, you first, what was good about Napoleon?
1: What was good about Napoleon is he did actually bring
0: stability at
1: the end of the terrors, uh, which followed on from the Antoine regime, uh, which was kind of a bad to worse kind of scenario. So even if he hadn't been successful, it would probably be an improvement, but he he brought some initial stability um, that was really important and managed to help France uh, recover both socially and economically uh, and I think it's always been on the rise kind of since then um, it's really helped them as a nation uh, he he was he was fantastic at war I don't think he was a genius at war the core system was not something that he uh, invented it was something that he developed uh, further I really enjoyed listening to Will Fletcher on the Napoleon earlier this month uh, went quite deeply into that but he was excellent at it and I really don't want to detract away from that. He had some fantastic victories, especially against large numbers. Uh, it's always put with the thing, of who didn't? You know, there's, there's some other ones out there, but he did some fantastic victories. And his legacy, I mean, the fact we're still talking about him, the propaganda machine that he set up was so successful that we will never stop talking about Napoleon. In fact, in a, I'd imagine in a thousand years' time, people will still be talking about Uh, Napoleon, and they won't be talking about many of our current leaders, Uh, he will persist. He will carry on, for good or bad, you know, from the tombs of Les Invalides, to the movie Waterloo, to some of his famous uh, quotes, some of his military quotes that are still taught today in places like West Point. Uh, And he will continue to be a dominating figure in history. So that is probably going to be his legacy. He will be one of the if you were going to name 10 people from history so at school, someone's going to probably name Napoleon.
0: And Luke, what's the darker side of Napoleon in your opinion?
2: Um, I think Napoleon, he changes as a, as, as a character. I mean, in, in general, over his reign, I think he gets he gets worse and then he gets better again. But if i got to come at it just from the sort of negative aspect... Um, you can see that he can be reckless with human life, he can put his own ambition over the lives of others, and you see this, um, I think, quite early on, even at Jaffa, when he executes um, thousands of, of prisoners of war, um, which we haven't spoke about, quite, which, which, which is quite surprising, but I, I think that's, you know, that, that, that's the very darkest side of Napoleon, that he can put, you know, his victory and his perception of what he wants and his victory over, over so many lives, and I think that's a that's a terrible flaw in, in a person. But then, the, again, there's a flip side: is that ambition can be a good thing as well. Um, but then, you know, there's the, the dark elements of his reign. So you look at the, the dark elements which which underpin the, the dark legend. But there are there of course truth in them. So there's the Jaffa executions, and then there's the um, the execution of the of of, of the Duke. Um, even even if they, you can sort of justify that in, in some way, it's still you know it's it's a bad thing in, in general. Um, he could be arrogant, he could be, um, he could let his own ego get too far. I mean, uh, w- when we mentioned earlier, you know, he refused what, what we, I think, would all agree could have been a good chance for a reasonable peace. Um, he, he could be, uh, he could certainly be cruel, as, as, as we said on, on occasion. And um, he, he could let his ambition, his arrogance and his ego cloud his better judgment um but then again you know napoleon is a huge figure in 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 history and and he's dealing with huge systems and huge ideas and he's a mover of worlds isn't he for want of a better world so so his great positives are sort of balanced out by by great uh negatives as well uh, in, in a certain extent so um you can see why there are such polarizing sort of opinions about him and, and as marcus rightly says you know this is this is going to continue um again of course yeah he, i didn't mention you know in spain he he, he misjudged the country completely and and uh, he he allowed what he thought to be the sort of uh, the goodness of his ideas to to trample over the the wants of other peoples which is somewhat contradictory when you consider his his um his focus on the plebiscitary style of 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 democracy, and also his, his opinions on religion as well, which is something which we haven't mentioned, but mm. something which I find myself sort of talking about. Um, in, in in the one aspect, he has this. This sort of interesting idea that people deserve to be governed by the religion that they are is in the majority and that they and that, that they agree with, which is why he sort of courts Islam in Egypt. Um, but at the same time, there's this sort of reckless sort of utilisation of religion as a political tool, which is something which is really unhelpful, and I think is something which we want to steer away from in in modern times as much as possible, and edge towards true secularism rather than just cynically using religion, which is I think something that he did um so yeah he's a very complex individual
1: kidnapping the pope and areas like that there's there's so much to cover
2: yeah yeah i mean yeah of course but i mean he kidnapped the pope but then when he was on saint helena the pope said that he considered napoleon to be a hero and that he doesn't deserve to suffer on saint helena despite the fact that he'd been kidnapped and sort of all this bullying really which which napoleon did with the pope yeah
0: Gents, this has been absolutely fantastic. It's been an an epic odyssey. It went on far longer than I anticipated, but I've enjoyed it hugely. I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed it hugely. Thank you so much for joining me to discuss Napoleon the Great Debate as part of Napoleon Month. That was manager of Apsley House Marcus Crib and historian Luke Daly-Groves joining me for the Napoleon the Great Debate. You can follow Marcus on Twitter at mcribhistory, and Luke can be found at Luke Daily Groves. And his excellent book, Hitler's Death, The Case Against Conspiracy, is available from Osprey. As always, the conversation continues online. You can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory and in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. If you're enjoying the episodes, please do take the time to have your say. As Luke and Marcus have shown today, these are complex topics and all views are valued, so please do know that you are always welcome to join the conversation. It's only by having these discussions that we can all develop our understandings of the period. As ever, please do also like, retweet, share, and if you can, take the time to leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. I'll be back on Wednesday as this hectic two Napoleonicist episodes a week during lockdown schedule continues. We'll be bringing you the second installment of our discussions on Napoleon's greatest battle as Vanya Bellinger, Will Fletcher, Gavin Lewis and Marcus Cribb, again, will be joining me to discuss Arcole, Jena, Leipzig and Toulon, which they are respectively championing. Next weekend, I'll be speaking to Professor Beatrice de Graaf on Napoleon and state security. And the following week, I'll be joined by Josh Proven as we go on an epic journey discussing Napoleon's marshals who served in the Peninsula War, which we are affectionately calling boney's boys in spain lots more to come then but until next time i'm zach white this has been napoleon the great debate part of napoleon month here on the napoleonicist take care my friends stay well stay safe stay strong and as always thank you for listening <music>